You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Fear of the Science Calling. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on five different theories as to why we get jealous in non-monogamous relationships. Our main topic is on pop play. We welcome special guest Pop Powder to talk about the pop community, its culture, and ways to get involved if you are interested. We close with some feedback on me talking too much in this show, and a question on reconciling polyamory and religion. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. And with us this week, remotely from his residence in Vancouver, is special guest Pup Powder. Hey guys, how's it going? You know, we're really excited for this show. It's, um, you know, we've been requested to talk about Pup Play um, for, for many, many months at this point. And we're really excited. seriously. <laughs> yeah, so we're excited to have a special guest who, you know, will be able to discuss this in a little bit more depth and with a lot more say expertise than we would be able to but um we're gonna put that on pause for a second or you know pause whatever that might be (laughs) and we're going to you know we're going to talk a little bit about um jealousy in non-monogamous relationships um there is a an article that was written um why do we get jealous in non-monogamous relationships five theories explained and this was written by rachel krantz and Rachel wanted to go over five different psychological theories or or social construct theories, perhaps, as to why we as people in non-monogamous relationships get jealous. Uh, and so throughout history, there have been psychologists, therapists, you know, some some form of random crackpots, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people like us, basically, who... We'd like to get together and talk about jealousy and why we experience it with, as part of the human condition. And uh, she starts out with Freud. And basically what she says is that, um, you know, Freud's theory is that, well, mom didn't love you as much as she loved dad. And so that's why jealousy develops. Um, you see, when you're a kid, typically you have a close relationship, according to Freud, at least with the opposite sex parent. So if you're a male, you know, you have a good relationship with your mother, you know, if you're a female, your daddy's little girl, so on and so forth. And what ends up happening is you see your parents having a close primary, you know, partnership and you come as secondary. So there's, you know, Freud's idea that jealousy is developed there, but of course that doesn't necessarily really explain everything because obviously Kids that are raised in single-parent homes experience jealousy. Kids that are raised in same-sex homes experience jealousy. So there's really, I mean, it's not really that great of an explanation as to the the origin of jealousy, so to speak. Right. But I think where Freud actually did a lot better is by describing the emotional components of jealousy. And so Freud actually did have a lot of contributions to the way we presently understand jealousy, just more so in the descriptive uh, side of things and not so much in the origin side, right? So Freud talks about how jealousy has these different components of fear of abandonment, uh, fear of loss, kind of envy of an, uh, maybe of com- competition and all these other components. And so he kind of breaks down the emotional components of jealousy. And I think seeing jealousy as being a complex emotion that has uh, complexity to it and that has other emotions as composite uh, parts of it, I think that was a, val- a valuable contribution of Freud's that we kind of continue to use going forward into the kind of more contemporary uh, theories we're going to talk about that uh, – 
Kathy brings up at the end of this, or sorry, that uh, Rachel brings up at the end of this. Honestly, it's also, mm-hmm. like, I say Kathy as a slip of the tongue, perhaps <laughs> um, but the reason is Kathy Labriola is basically, uh, no offense to Ms. Krantz, but I feel like she essentially abstracted this from uh, Kathy Labriola's book, which is on the topic of jealousy. So uh, credit to Rachel, but also credit to Kathy for kind of laying out all these things. So Right. I, would, I was actually going to bring up uh, <laughs> Kathy um, at the end, um, even though she's not really mentioned uh, within the article itself. It's I do feel that this is entirely abstracted from her. But yes, Freud does really, you know, Freud views jealousy as a nightmare. Um, you know, the whole idea is that jealousy brings forth grief and then loss and then enmity. So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, stages of jealousy that Freud goes through. Um, so, I mean, they do apply to modern relationships and really relationships, relationships at large, I should say rather, because, you know, we, everybody experiences jealousy. So that's a good foundation for it, but it's not really that applicable the, the origin story, at least. Um, Darwin, uh, you know, in Darwinian theory, there's the second theory, which is that jealousy is evolution, baby, basically. You know, him being a little rock star going against the grain, you know, <clears throat> Darwin posits that men's jealousy tends to center around the idea of their partner having sex with another man. So, of course, this is heteronormative, as most of these are going to be. And it's the the whole concept that the the core evolutionary drive of a man is to have sex with a lot of women and to procreate. The biological drive is to further your lineage. And so the thing is, is that this really kind of goes into the whole concept that we as men would rather have, you know, our, our, our wives, our girlfriends, whoever we are having sex with, not have sex with other people because that threatens the idea that we are the father of the child. And so we end up having to go onto Maury Povich, onto Jerry Springer, <laughs> and have another man tell us who the father is. And we don't like that. There's, you know, the idea that with men, it's all about paternity, whereas with females, it's all about emotional intimacy. And that's why women get jealous, because they see men being more emotionally intimate with other people. Again, this is very binary, very heteronormative, and it's not really that great, because again, it doesn't really account for the reality that women cheat and crave multiple partners just as much as men. So, you know, it's a great idea, but it doesn't really go into that much depth or hold much water nowadays. Right. So and the other issue, so the Darwinian theory is very, uh, makes a lot of sense at face value, but the, some of the issues with it as well, are that really explains things at the, I would say, more primitive part of our brains quite well, right? It explains how our amygdala processes jealousy very well right? But it doesn't really explain how we then cognitively experience jealousy. So it's kind of, uh, it's, it's a bit of an oversimplification or an over, uh, or a reductionist approach to jealousy, because it doesn't really take into account anything that our frontal cortex does once it experiences those base evolutionarily driven mate guarding emotions. It doesn't really take into account then how we, how we respond or react to any of those emotions, right? So Darwinian theory really has nothing to say about how we cognitively process jealousy, right? So that's, I think, a big deal here. So yeah. Darwin, Darwinian theory to me just it's, it's, it doesn't it lacks explanatory power. It's not it's not it's not a all encompassing enough theory to have 
really uh, useful place in kind of a modern understanding of jealousy, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's it's great as a, again, most of these earlier constructs are great as a, a platform to build onto because it kind of starts the fire, but it, it doesn't really have that much of a police nowadays. I, I kind of tend to agree more with um, starting with the following theory, which is uh, by Dr. Hopka, which is that jealousy is a social construct. So Dr. Ralph Hopka is a cross-cultural psychologist who studies jealousy in society. And so what ends up happening is that Hopka was able to find that there are certain patterns in societies where jealousy is more prevalent. Um, certain factors, like there's a strong emphasis on property rights um, in terms of like possessions, land, and actually ownership and control uh, of your spouse and children, being able to claim them on your taxes, for example. Um there, there's a social code that makes sex into this false scarcity, this this resource that is scarce, and sex is restricted with uh, lots of rules and social taboos. So sex is a scarce resource. Um, there's an emphasis in this society on having lots of children and knowing who's the father. So basically, well, that's my kid, that's my kid. Again, going back to the idea of ownership, being able to claim progeny. And there's a strong emphasis on marriage for being more for economic survival and, and social status as opposed to actually getting married for love and companionship. So the thing is that in societies where these values are not as strong, people report less jealousy. So Dr. Hupka reports that jealousy is socialized as opposed to innate. Right. And I think that's actually the – I want to spoil it when I was talking about the – the criticisms of the evolutionary theory earlier, but this is basically the nail in the coffin for the purely Darwinian evolutionary approach to thinking about jealousy, right? Because we know that lots of components of jealousy are in fact socialized, and this is really great evidence for it, the fact that there's variations from one society to another. That's ex excellent evidence for the fact that it is not 100% inherited, right? The other thing that to keep in mind here, and getting back to evolutionary evidence, is there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how evolution works built into the evolutionary understanding that I think this then further uncovers. And speaking as a biologist I'm who has a PhD in biology, I'm going to talk about evolution for a second because I actually do kind of have the credential to back that one up. So evolution is all about seeing sexual selection, right? So, and that means things that, grow, that, that when evolution can only see traits that boost your ability to not only reproduce yourself, but that individually boost that gene's ability to re to go on and to be carried forward, right? So for something to be ev evolutionarily adaptive, being very jealous would actually have to really truly make sure that you're passing on your genes to more individuals, right? For that to be evolutionarily adaptive, right? But there's a problem with that. <laughs> it's actually evolutionarily adaptive to have, your, to have children with multiple partners and to spread your seed around. So so people in non-jealous <laughs> cultures actually have more progeny than people in jealous cultures. So there's another problem with evolutionary theory. That is direct evidence against jealousy ever being selected for, because if that, because people who are non-jealous, if they end up in situations where they're allowed to express that non-jealousy, actually out-reproduce out, out those who are very jealous. So there's lots of evidence. And again, there's, again, people argue against that theory, saying that, hey, we have to be able to work against that because some cultures don't, you know, they, they encourage jealousy anyway, but evolutionary theory does not support that notion. So this theory is also, this uh, social theory is really a 
kind of the nail in the coffin for Darwinian theory as well. And I kind of didn't want to spoil my, the, your, this theory when I was talking about Darwinian theory earlier. But really, if we think about the fact that a lot of jealousy is socialized, that really means that it can't be fully inherited, right? And if we look at the fact that societies around the world, some, in some cases, certain lineages are more successful because they practice non-monogamy. And some societies are actually uh, have rules where they're able to have met multiple, multiple partners. And so therefore, their seed gets spread very far that can actually have evolutionary advantages. So it's not entirely clear that really jealous mate guarding is in fact all that evolutionarily advantageous. And we have some pretty good evidence from societies around the world to suggest that it might not be. We can also turn to things like our bono the bonobos, which are our nearest evolutionary uh, relative. And note, note the fact that bonobos are actually quite non-monogamous and don't ha have, obviously have a real conception of jealousy in their society. And they use sex for all sorts of reasons including just social bonding and friendship. And I think lots of the ways furries use sex, to be honest. <laughs> I think maybe we're getting more in touch with our bonobo side to an extent. But um, I think that's actually really cool. And knowing that these societies around the world exist kind of lends credence to the idea that jealousy is, to an extent, a learned uh, behavior or a learned trait and not necessarily an innate one. Uh, yeah, you know, it's absolutely there. Um, so the whole thing is... You know, evolutionary psychology is really fascinating uh, when it comes to the study of psychology and also like the way that we as people interact with each other. And when it comes to jealousy, it's fascinating to see that it really is kind of this huge social construct, or perhaps it's one that comes with the idea of like object permanence. And that's something that um, the next theory from Dr. Ayala Pines. Um, goes into the fact that we have five main fears, and this is one of them, this idea of jealousy. Why do we feel jealousy? Why why do we have these fears? And a lot of it has to do with object permanence. Um, the, the core of jealousy, according to Dr. Pines, is that you were chosen by your mate, and Dr. Pines mostly works with monogamous couples, so your mileage might vary here again. So... She thinks that it is this this combination of your childhood, your past relationships, and the dynamic of your current relationship. So jealousy will never be the same in any relationship, but it's mostly you were chosen by your partner, and jealousy comes from the fear that that feeling of being chosen, of being the object of his desire, will be lost or cheapened most by him dating somebody else, even if logically... You know that there's no threats of him, you know, your partner leaving you. So there are five cardinal fears that she says that jealousy triggers. Um, the fear of abandonment, the fear of losing status or face in community or society, the idea of betrayal, you know, them cheating on you, um, competitive, competitiveness and fear of, you know, inadequacy, not stacking up to a new partner and also just envy towards our partner's other partner towards your metamorph. So there's this entire idea that, again, boils down to you want to be the object of your partner's desire, not have to compete, not have to worry about, you know, not have a fear of missing out, any of that. And that's what drives jealousy. Um, this, they, she also goes into detail about the sixth thing about scarcity, not getting enough time, feelings, love, sex, attraction, romantic, you know, bullshit, whatever it might be. So I was going to talk about that just for a second. Metric, yeah, though, go ahead. 
That one's actually pretty important and relevant for our audience because that's the one that really comes into play for a lot of people who are in non-monogamous relationships. And it's frankly one of the ones that I grapple with in my own relationship because scarcity is the one, and this kind of is going to be a bit of a preview for uh, Kathy Labriola's theory, which is about to come up, because sometimes fears are valid, right? And in certain polyamorous situations or open uh, situations, there actually can be a situation where a partner becomes too distracted by their other partners and doesn't have enough time for you and actually is in certain uh, to an extent neglecting you, right? So that fear of scarcity, especially in non-monogamous situations, can sometimes be a valid fear. And that's one that's worth, you know, checking in with your partners about, making sure you're advocating for your needs and making sure that you actually are getting a appropriate or fair slice of your partner's time and attention based on the relationship that you have with your partner. That's a conversation that you guys need to have to make sure you're on the same page with expectations, right? But I think that that fear in particular for non-monogamous uh, couples or uh, wow, non-monogamous whatever is polycules. I, I can't <laughs> believe my I just like inserted some random couples privilege in there. I don't know why I did that. Bad Vero, bad dog. <laughs> um, anyway, but like that that one's very valid for non-monogamy situations or open and polyamorous situations. So I think it's worth pointing that out. Some of these fears can be valid. And that's a really great way of segueing into Kathy Labriola's theory, which I'll let you take it away with, Metrico. Great. So we're going to talk about Kathy now. So, and we've actually spoken about this in the past. Um, so Kathy works primarily with non-monogamous couples. She is polyamorous herself, hero, champion, you know. Here, 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 we finally get to something that's a little bit closer to what I feel reflects what everything is when it comes to jealousy. So the idea is that we view jealousy as a natural response. It is a natural response, and it serves to the purpose of alerting us to being a warning sign on our dashboard, as, as Vero has coined so many times in various episodes and uh, <laughs> advice columns. I never shut up about it, basically. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it serves the purpose of kind of alerting us, telling us to, hey, pay attention, you know, your relationship might be in danger. It may not be, but you should wake up and like pay attention. You know, there are outside factors that are being introduced, new people, you know, it's, it's, there might be danger. There probably isn't. You need to check whether the relationship is, you know, in danger. If, you know, the engine is experiencing problems or whether it's just a false alarm. So, you know, when, when polyamorous individuals, when, when new relationships, you know, when new partnerships enter into your life, you know, it's it's one of the great things that we have to look out for is that, you know, new relationships can be incredibly destabilizing. They can disrupt. They, they go against the status quo that we have established, whether it's... Yeah, game changers. We talk about game changers all the time, right? So once you have some kind of a destabilizing factor, a new variable that enters into the equation, it's up to you to kind of wake up and make sure that the relationship is sound. That's not to say that you eliminate the variable, it's to say that you have to adapt. And so jealousy kind of operates as that, you know, wake up moments, you know, hey, something new is being introduced, you need to wake up and figure out how to integrate it, or if it's going to function at all. Right. And this is actually uh, something that I think is really important to think about. I'm just going to expand that game changer comment I mm -hmm. made just a little bit. Because I think when you, we use that term, it kind of obviously makes sense. It's intuitive, but it actually, it's a, such a wonderful metaphor because it, it goes so deep, right? Because when you change the game, if you literally change from one game to a different game, different games have different rules and expectations, right? And you play them differently. Just because you're the same person doesn't mean you play the game the same way. Your strategy might change, the way you relate to the other players might change, how you're allowed to interact with the other players might change, right? 
So when you, and, you, and that's assuming all the players are even the same. Maybe if you change to a game where there's a different number of players. Maybe this game's adversarial and one game is not. Maybe in this game, one play, person's the, the, the judge or the DM or something, and the, and the other players are just there to be controlled, right? When you change the game, you change the rules. So when you introduce a game changer, when you introduce a new person who requires rules to be thrown away or adapted, you're changing the rules you're going to be using going forward. So you have to kind of start from square one again, in a way. And maybe the rules you have for this new relationship look the same or similar as the rules you had before, but you are still changing the game. You're basically rewriting the rules when you introduce a new player, right? And that's very important to keep in mind. You have to kind of rewrite your rules every time you change something about the way the game's being played. And that's something that some people don't... People are very uncomfortable with change, but you have to be very comfortable with treating your relationship terms like they're a living document because you're alive and so is your partner, ideally. I'm not going to completely judge the, the necrophiliacs here, but maybe don't act on that one. So ideally, you're both alive and you're both changing and growing because that's the definition of being alive. So that means that you guys need to be able to figure out how to rewrite your rules as you go forward. And I think that's that's why I love Kathy Labriola's theory of, of, of jealousy because it, it dovetails so well with kind of that, that, the, that game changer idea of how, how people actually process tumult or new things, new variables being introduced to a relationship, like somebody discovering a new kink, which can be just as traumatic as somebody discovering a new partner, by the way. I've seen that happen. That happens all the time. So introducing anything new to the relationship, whether it's a person, a kink, maybe some, some person's family members, who knows, right? But introducing some aspect to the relationship changes the way the game needs to be played. You have to be willing to roll with the punches and, and grow and adapt and keep as uh, another thing I like to say on the show all the time is to, to borrow that kind of from Carol Dweck, which is the idea of an open mindset, right? This, this theory of jealousy really says the way to defeat this kind of jealousy is to keep an open mindset and be willing to kind of roll with the punches and be flexible going forward with your, the way you relate to others, right, Metrico? Right. And, you know, a good way to get started with all of this, if you, you know, have issues with jealousy, with processing jealousy, a good starting place is to forgive yourself, you know, to, to, allow for yourself to understand that jealousy is in a lot of ways a natural response to certain inputs. And so with you as, you know, an individual in a relationship, whenever you encounter jealousy, it's important to identify why you're experiencing it and not beat yourself up for experiencing it. You know, we, we as people or whatever you might identify as, we tend to equate jealousy with being a relationship ender, but it doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be. It definitely shouldn't be. It should just be a, a signal for you to pay closer attention to how your relationship is going. And then from there, kind of make any adjustments, you know, wake up to any changes that are happening and adjust yourself and adjust the way that you react to, you know, how your relationship is now. Right. I think, that's actually the other thing that I, I'm glad you brought that up about Kathy's theory that I love is that you don't really kind of judge or have moralize about your, the you know warning light in your car being on. You don't say your car is a bad car or like your car has failed you because the warning light came on once. You kind of you don't really judge your car that harshly. You kind of just deal with it, right? So you should really treat jealousy in yourself the same way. It's just a warning light. You don't have to judge yourself and shame yourself for feeling that way. It's a, it's a perfectly natural thing to feel. It could be you're feeling jealous for a valid reason. It could be you're feeling je jealous for no valid reason at all. But the fact that you're feeling jealous is not inherently good or bad. It doesn't make you a good or bad person. It doesn't make you a good or bad polyamorist or monogamist or whatever it is you are. It's fine to feel jealous. There's nothing wrong with it. How, it's how you react to that jealousy and how you process it 
and what it what it means for you that actually ends up defining how things how things actually make sense going forward. We're going to move on from that. You know, we wanted to talk a little bit more about jealousy. I know that we've had episodes about it in the past, but it's a good refresher and it's a good, you know, I think it's nice to study the way that people in the past, um, other psychologists or, you know, assholes like Vero and me have <laughs> sort of, you know, coined what the origin of jealousy is and why we experience it. But we want to move in because we do have a special guest, everybody. Yeah. Speaking of game changers, I met one when I was at Vancouver and he's awesome. And it turns out he's a pup. And I was like, you know, I run this podcast and it would really be great if you'd come on and talk about all this really cool pup stuff you do, because you're really experienced with that. And I'm not. And we've been looking to have somebody on the show who's competent at in the and capable and experienced with the pup and handler community and would be able to talk about it. So Lo and behold, you were willing to come on my show. So thank you very much for being here. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Uh, always glad to help out somebody like you and Metrico, of course. Oh. Also <laughs> pandas, yes. So <laughs> I guess like to to everybody, why don't you just kind of introduce yourself? Um, you know, who who are you? Well, I am... Pop Powder. Uh, I'm known by several other names. I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, I've been in a puppy two going on three years, and it's kind of just been this amazing experience and journey for me as uh, so far. So I really felt the need to talk about it so that other people who may be interested but maybe a little too nervous might get a better understanding as to what they're getting into and how open and uh, inviting it is and you're pretty active with the scene in vancouver where you're based right uh i try to be yes um you know work and other um other things i'm devoted to uh take time away from that but yes i absolutely try to be the best member of the community i can be and I mean, just for, you know, for, I guess, newer listeners, maybe people that are younger and maybe haven't been exposed to it. What exactly is, you know, pup play? Like, what is the community? Um, pup play is basically um, a bunch of guys, gals, uh, everywhere in between who just like to get down on some mats and wrestle with other people acting as a dog with other people who also act like dogs and i like dogs that sounds good yeah well you are a dog <laughs> i am <clears throat> so i mean i guess like from my you know it's it's the most identifying you know piece of equipment might be like the pop hood like the pop is it a hood is it a mask uh, some people call it hoods, some people call it masks, uh, I'm sure other people have other names for it, but, um, hood or mask are two, uh, majorly defining names for it, yeah. <clears throat> so, within the community, um, you refer to each other as pups or poppies, are there any other kind of um people that are in the community anything yeah, like that? when we when we did our episode on like defining your roles in bdsm culture we did a little bit of talking about roles in and uh kind of pup and handler culture obviously that term has the word handler in it so that's another role that can be a thing too so 
I guess maybe talk maybe you can talk about what the different roles are. I know there's there are handlers, there are alpha pups, there are other pups. So kind of how does that all work, and how does that shake out for each individual person who kind of comes into the community? Uh, so you want me to explain all the roles and kind of how they interact with each other, or just basically? Sure it's kind of an overview of how the whole thing works would be kind of useful, I think. Because not, not don't assume a lot of knowledge, because not everybody who's listening has actually heard a lot about pups and handlers before. So yeah, and a lot of what I'm gonna say is uh, purely opinion based anyway, and only what I see. Like this is not defining information of how it has to be so of course yeah, um, we, we encourage our listeners to always keep that into account we're just three assholes talking on the internet we're not giving you anything definitive it's just meant to be helpful and educational so yeah, take it so, with a grain of salt everybody as for the roles there um well of course there's pups uh there's handlers um not every pup has to have a handler uh, technically, I don't have a handler, although my husband uh, sometimes acts as a handler when he's not a puppy, and sometimes I act as his handler when I'm not a puppy, although that doesn't do much good because he's a little uh, rambunctious. Um, and then there's alpha pups, which I am, and I have two beta pups of my own and basically if you're an alpha pup with beta pups um, generally there's a dominance thing in place there um, there doesn't have to be <laughs> uh, you could just call yourself an alpha dog because you think it sounds cool you can self-identify however you like right exactly <clears throat> Uh, but that's just how my dynamic as an alpha pup works. And then there's dogs, because some people don't like defining themselves as a pup because they find themselves older or maybe a little more like uh, mature emotionally or what have you when they're... Wow, in... you guys have an equivalent to gray muzzle. That's awesome. I had no idea. See, now we learned something. You guys have an equivalent term for gray muzzle. <laughs> Yeah, um, and uh, so yeah, there's there's dogs. We also have kitties who play on the mats, but that's there that's part of pet play in general. And then uh, there's squeaky toys that we have also, and they're basically the people that we pull down on the mats and tickle, and they make good noises. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. It's quite it's quite a lot of different roles you can have. So, I mean, within the community itself, not to interject, but um, is there any kind of like a dom-sub sort of relationship going with the handler and with the pup? Uh, depends on how you like to play with your with your headspace and your, and your, your pup play. Uh, a lot of people do have a dom-sub role going on there. Um, I prefer not to. <laughs> when I'm playing on the mats anyway. So, uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like listening to orders or following rules or I, I like being on the edge of that, right? So um, there's not really a dom sub scenario for me, but there is for lots of other people, yes. So, I mean, the handler is, you know, there's there's no set role for a handler then. It's, um, 
Yeah, like, like I know in some cases it can be kind of more of a training role where you kind of bring someone like up as a pup, and sometimes it can be more of just a being there, kind of accompanying them, kind of role. Sometimes there's some dominance, right? So it can kind of be a spectrum. Is that is that about right? That's kind of my understanding. Yeah, a handler is a spectrum, absolutely. Like I know a couple handlers who are submissive handlers. Um, there are others that are more of caretaker sort of a role. When they're pups in headspace, they're not really thinking about keeping hydrated and stuff like that. So that's what they worry about. And then there are there are trainers, there are doms, and I actually know someone who's blind who has a human puppy act as kind of a seeing eye dog when he's out at the bars. So there's all sorts of roles that can happen there. <clears throat> That's awesome, actually. <laughs> it's kind of adorable. Like, I kind of love that. Um, it's really cool. So I guess, so we now kind of understanding about what all the roles are, how would you say that you went about determining how you were going to fit into this community? Like, how did you get into it, and how did you determine what your role is going to be? Uh, I got into it through my husband. Uh, determining my role... Uh, I base that a lot on my personality as a human, but a little more accentuated. You know, how you kind of reserve yourself in certain situations so as not to be embarrassing or rude. Um, well, I just let all that out as a puppy. Uh, my... I found in my experience that a lot of new and emerging pups in the scene try to conform to stereotype-like beliefs. For example, a lot of new pups assume they have to have a handler, like absolutely, and that's not true. Um, while yes, some pups do have handlers and some may be submissive, I think personally there's a large percentage of pups who aren't any of those things. There are also all sorts of combinations, which I delved into earlier. Uh, the list goes on and on. Okay. Um, so kind of just comes down to like, I guess like, do you, is, when you're kind of, it's kind of like designing a fursona then, would you kind of compare it to that in some ways? Is that kind of what it, what it ends up being like? Uh, yeah, I think in a way it would be. My, my fursona as well is also kind of a different side of myself that I felt like I've always had but was never able to express and that's a lot of what I feel my pup is as well. It's just another side of myself that I'm not able to let out in everyday life when I have to worry about things like rent or food or shit like that, right? <clears throat> right, so kind of escaping from adulthood kind of is a form of escapism in a big way, right? Uh, form of escapism for some, stress relief for others. Some people, it's just, they have fun playing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> cool. So, so, like, if you're going to first go to a pup event, you're, you're kind of new on the scene, you're curious, you're excited for the future, you want to get going, like, what would you actually do at your first pup event? How do you actually get started with the community? Like, what, what are some good ways to do that? few ways to get involved in your first pup event or to find one? 
I guess first off, we could start with like, how do you find the pub community in your area? Or like, how do you even know if there is one? And then like, um, if you're going to your first event, like, what is that going to be like for you? Kind of co combo question, I guess. Well, what I found is with finding pub groups in my, in my area and other people's areas as well, I've helped a lot of people do this. And basically, I just go into the Facebook search bar or Google even, and I type wherever they're from and then pups and handlers or human puppies and usually something will come up group wise or or something that uh that's related to that so it's actually fairly easy in that regard i would say you see the acronym pah a lot too right so people you might want to search that as well yeah paw like if i wanted to find seattle's group i might search seattle pah i know it would come right up so yeah um, P-A-H stands for Pups and Handlers. Uh, we like using it. Well, I do because, you know, PAW. It's a convenient acronym. <laughs> yeah, also there's some nice, yeah. Exactly. There's some, there's some, some of that uh, wonderful onomatopoeia almost going in there, so that works out. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one who knows that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so once so, you find, like, a pop event you know, something that you can commute to, something that you can go to. What are things that you should kind of know, like, before you attend? Because there's no real, like, pop primer, I would say, like, etiquette-wise or anything like that. So what are some things that you should know about pop events? Okay, so kind of like a before-you-buy thing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what exactly are you signing up for, right? At least at the pub events that I go to in Vancouver, um, most thing you'd really have to worry about is um, amount of clothing or lack thereof. There's some pups who like to just mosh around a jock strap, which is fine with me, absolutely. I sure don't mind the eye candy. <laughs> but... Some people might feel uh, a little uncomfortable with that at first. And so that's something to be aware of going in, because if you're not prepped mentally for that and you're not used to just bare asses in public, it might throw you off. Um, basically, how your first pop event will go depends on how outgoing and um, extroverted you're able to be. If you're more of a shy, introverted person, you'll probably just watch from the sidelines and maybe not talk so much to anybody and, you know, just get a feel for it first, right? Uh, see, see if you like the vibe you're getting. That would be me, probably, if I was going by myself. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I've... Brought a lot of people to pup. I've invited a lot of people to pup moshes, and the first time, that's just what they do, and that's cool. You know, test the waters, dip your toes in first. But if you're someone like me, first mosh I went to, I was actually it wasn't even a a public mosh when I got my first experience with pup play. I was actually in some someone's backyard for a big puppy party, moshing around with. Um, a tennis ball, uh, a couple other pups, and their bio dog. So I was right into it right away. That's awesome. 
<clears throat> my first first sitting experience is I also had a ball in my mouth for some reason, but you know it happens. <laughs> no, Dogs, I, right? I keep I keep hearing you say the the term mosh and you know, it's it's when I hear the term mosh, I think of like a mosh pit at a concert where people are jumping around everywhere. Somebody inevitably breaks a limb. Uh, like within the pop culture, within the community, I, I'm guessing mosh has, I would say, a similar yet hopefully safer kind of meaning, right? It is a lot more tame than <laughs> a big heavy metal mosh at a concert. Uh for one, we do have first aid on hand. <laughs> um, That's useful. And two, um, you're on your hands and knees running around and wrestling like a dog. So you can't get much force behind you when you're in that position that your human body is not used to being in. So it is a mosh in a pup sense is a lot safer than, say, a Megadeth concert. (laughs) (laughs) But in general, when you refer to like pup meets, like get togethers, you refer to them as moshes or is that reserved for particular events? Um, Moshes can are usually reserved for events where people put like wrestling mats down and like that's the focus of what the pups are doing there are also other events like a bunch of pups going hood to a park for a walk and or to the movies or to dinner somewhere and those uh have generally been called walkies at least in vancouver and seattle they might call them something else uh in Los Angeles or wherever, but that's Excellent. what we call them here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at your first event, you know, we, we've spoken about being introverted, you know, you were a little bit more extroverted, I guess, in your, in your experience, how you just kind of, you know, into the fray with a tennis ball and other pups and, uh, you know, some people's bio dogs, um, you know, do you think that that was to your benefit, like being extroverted? I certainly had a lot more fun a lot faster than if I just sat on the sidelines and been quiet like I had started doing. But uh, because when I first got to the event, that's what I did. I sat down. I had my head down. I was very quiet. Didn't ask anybody anything. And, but then I decided, you know what? Fuck this. I'm just going to go for it. And because that looks really fun... <laughs> and I want to get a piece of that. Otherwise, I might. I started to get uh, a little bit of fear missing out. <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. But I think one thing to keep in mind here that maybe, you know, you're talking about introversion and, and being anxious and being at an, a pup event. I think one really important thing to keep in mind might be the difference between the headspace you might think you'll be in and the headspace you're actually in when you're putting on a pup hood, too. Because I think for me, I know I, I experienced this from fursuiting. When I'm costuming and when my face is behind a mask, I feel so much less socially anxious. I feel so much more extroverted than I do when I'm in my human skin, right? So can you talk about that a little bit? Like going to a mosh or like a pup event in hood versus going in your human skin, you might actually feel a lot less inhibited than you think you're going to, right? Just because of the the nature of pup headspace. 
Okay, yeah, we're... Okay, so let's roll into gear here for a second. Um, technically, uh, you don't need a hood to get into that same headspace. But for a lot but of people... Help. But for a lot of people, a hood definitely helps. Absolutely. Um, whether it... Um, makes you feel like a dog, makes you look like a dog, just gets you into that thought process that, oh, I put on this dog mask, so I'm a dog now, that tricks your for brain me pers- into Honestly, rolling for into me that. personally, not, sorry to interrupt you, but for me personally, the big thing with putting on a mask is just people can't tell if I'm smiling. And with my social anxiety, like, that's actually a big deal because I feel this really weird, like, awkward, like, it's like, Sense like, am I smiling enough? Am I like, should I be smiling? Are those people over there smiling more than me? Are they having a better time? I have this weird like anxiety about smiling, but I don't have that when I'm wearing anything like a, a furry, a, a fursuit head or like a pup mask. That anxiety totally goes away and I can enjoy myself and be in the moment a lot more. So that's just how I personally experience it. But yeah, totally. I think that can really help. Yeah, yeah. I feel, I feel the same way. That's why I wear a hood generally. It's just, I'm able to roll into that headspace a lot easier when people can't see my facial expressions um because like you outside of a outside of my hood i'm always trying to not smile and if someone's taking a picture like i can't be in it because i'll look terrible shit like that right so i would really help with that yep definitely but no so like you don't need to have like the equipment the gear to get into public i mean i would imagine it's your first you know mosh you're not going to roll in with like an entire you know kit you're not gonna roll in with a thousand dollars in gear unless you've got a lot of money to spend (laughs) Uh, which some people do and that's fine but uh, I don't, for one. <laughs> so the hood that I moshed in the first time, I actually borrowed from the man who's now my husband, and I still have it. So I actually haven't paid for any up here yet. <laughs> so That's one way to do it, just marry well. So, no, you don't need the gear by any means, but if you're someone who has trouble with social anxiety or relaxing in that sort of a situation, a hood would definitely help. Right. You know, it's, I find, especially with, like, other kinks, you know, when we talk about leather communities, the bondage community, you know, any other kind of kink community where you have, like, a... I would say, I don't think that the gatekeeper is having the equipment, but rather it's just being able to get into the mindset. You know, a lot of people tend to get kind of scared away because they see the price tag on a hood. You know, you have like the ones that are maybe the more ready to wear mass produced equipment. And then you have the more deluxe versions, which are far more expensive. So, and I mean, people see them. Right. So people see like these price tags. I mean, fursuits are, you know, easily, if you want to go for 
something that's custom, you're looking at a base of a thousand dollars just to get your foot in the door. Oh, that's that's for like maybe like a, a partial for I, all you're talking about. Like at least three grand. <laughs> right. Well, for, I mean, again, I'm saying like that's just to like put down like a down payment, like just to put your yeah, name right, on the sure, list, sure. you know? Yeah. It's well, just. Thing, <laughs> sorry to cut you off. No, you, go ahead. You, go you, ahead. You can finish. No, um, no, no. Go the, ahead, please. The thing with Pup Gear is um, there's more and more people making more and more stuff every day. So um, if you can't afford something from this person, uh, by all means, shop around. There's lots of people. There's Cedar Pup on Etsy. There's Rough Stuff in the UK. There's Mr. S leather. There's doghouse leathers in Seattle. Can you can slow down a bit more. Just, like I was like, one of my next questions is like, where can you actually go to get gear? Like, if I, you don't have, if you live in Seattle or San Francisco or you know Vancouver, maybe you can actually go to a gear store. But if you live somewhere else, where do you go to get this stuff? I will. Um, do you want me to go over that right now? Yeah, sure. So we talk about a little bit. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. We'll um, put some links in the show notes too, obviously. But yeah, um, the. The people who kind of started it off, I think, were Mr. S. Leathers in San Francisco. Uh, they came out with the hood that I still wear today. Um, and they now have that hood in neoprene, that hood, that same hood in leather. They've got a new style of leather hood that looks more like a pit bull, I guess. And same with their new neoprene hoods. But then, so they're in San Francisco. So if you're local to that, then that's kind of the place to check out. But they also got an online store. They do custom pup hoods. <clears throat> if you're in Seattle, there's Doghouse Leathers. That's where I recommend you to go. Um, they've got a very great leather worker down there who I know personally. He does great custom work. They only do leather pup hoods, I think, custom. Um, but they have all sorts of other fun gear as well. <clears throat> it's a great uh, store. I've been there a bunch of times. Yeah, definitely check them out if you're local in this area. Absolutely. Uh, Vancouver, uh, we kind of and kind of not have a gear store. Uh, it's called Little Sisters. And then... Of course, they, it's called Little Sisters. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, they they sell some gear, not a hell of a lot compared to say Doghouse Leathers or Mister S, and that's fine. Um, but they have a couple smaller towns. Your mileage may vary, right? Yeah, they they have a couple pup hoods there, um, and then there's. Rough Stuff in the UK, they have an online store, or if you're local, I'm not sure if they have a physical store, but they do neoprene hoods, and you can print whatever you want on them, so uh, fully customizable, really. And then there's the Wellcat Pet, which I think is only an online store, but they do relatively inexpensive custom leather hoods. I know the current um, Northwest puppy has a hood from them, and it looks great. So those are 
the biggest places that I know about that do that sort of thing. It's going to stop you right there. I'm going to guess Northwest Puppy is a title that a puppy in the Northwest has won of some kind. That's kind of like a Miss America type thing. Is that is that right? Yes, puppy puppy communities do have uh, competitions. Uh, there's Northwest Puppy, which is basically Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, and I'm not sure if we have anyone else in there, but we might. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> then we have International Puppy, which uh, is everywhere, really. And then, as you <laughs> might expect. <laughs> There are also European puppy competitions, but I don't know specifically any of those ones. But yeah, puppy community does have uh, competitions much like the leather community or the rubber community. <clears throat> yeah, I know um, uh, Pop Mr. Puppy UK uh, for this year um, was uh, Piglet. And I know that they have like Mr. Puppy Europe... So there's a lot of like pup community and pup um, competitions. I will, I will say, you know, pageantry perhaps within Europe as well. I, I think most countries have one, and it's. I know that the big one is Mr. Puppy Europe. Um, that's their national competition. I know in uh, New York, if we're talking about like regional competitions, we have um, Mr. Pup Northwest. Um, or Northeast, rather. I got my directions confused for a second. Um, <laughs> I thought you were living in Vancouver with me. Yeah. We only, we wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be a dream? Um, <laughs> Let's not get on to that topic. <laughs> uh, it would be more a nightmare. But, uh, you know, it, it's funny for me, you know, you know, for a nightmare just because like me not being in New York city, like nobody could handle my level of just homosexuality. Um, <laughs> you know, when it comes to like the pup community though, whenever I see a lot of events, whenever I see people, uh, pups or handlers within the community, I do say that there are a lot of tie-ins with, with other kink cultures. So you, I often see a lot of like pup play that is, you know, kind of bonded with sensory deprivation or with, um, some kind of bondage. So is there a lot of yeah. interplay? I was going to bring that up too, because I know like, you know, the, the, the puppy community in large part came out of also the leather community, which right. is a kind of a gay BDSM culture. There's a lot of connections to BDSM culture. And then also just in terms of headspace, I know there's a lot of overlap between different communities because you talked you know, a bit about dom sub dynamics. I know for myself, that a lot of the same headspace that I get into when I'm fursuiting is very similar to what you would call pup headspace. And I treat them very similarly because I behave very fairly when I'm in fursuit and I'm essentially becoming a pup. I'm just not really part of the community when I'm fursuiting, right? I'm still being a pup. I'm just doing it in a fursuit rather than in a hood, right? So how do you feel like all those things kind of interplay and where does the overlap and how do those things intersect for you? Um, well, let's start with the fetish communities first. Um, seeing as how Metrico asked first so nicely. <laughs> um... Puppy Play did come out of the, the BDSM community. Um, I think the specifics were uh, it used to be a punishment that masters gave to their slaves by making them eat out of dog dishes, but then they ended up liking it. And then it kind of just... As so many punishments yeah. go with BDSM, right? <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works, huh? <laughs> yeah, isn't it? 
can never punish a fox. That's what I always say. Stockholm syndrome. It's lovely this time of year. It is. Um, but uh, in terms of being involved in BDSM or gear, in terms of rubber, leather, neoprene as a puppy, um, all depends on your dynamic. Um, I'm sure there are pups out there who don't use gear at all, no leather, no rubber, no hood, no nothing. And But there are a lot of pups who are specifically rubber pups. I've seen a few of those uh, in Europe. And there are some pups who are leather pups. Uh, there are some pups who like neoprene. There are some pups who like a combination of the three, like myself, as well as other things. Uh, basically, it all depends on your dynamic outside of puppy play and if you want to involve that with the puppy play as well. <clears throat> Makes sense to me. Yeah, I think... Like for me, when kind of when I'm I'm just kind of getting into the puppy scene myself, I feel like I take a lot of the character that is my dog, furry, persona. And I'm really just turning that into reinterpreting that as a pup, which really is no work at all except buying a hood, pretty much. So I think that's for me. I, I don't really see there as being a huge distinction between how I kind of perform when I'm in fursuit and how I would perform when I'm in hood. But I get, I think that might be different depending on who you are, right? Because you don't have to necessarily be the same person in every scenario, right? Like some people, the relationships they have in the pup community don't even really extend outside of the pup community, right? Like that you might be with somebody as a pup and then like not really interact a whole lot when you're not a pup, right? Is that pretty common? Um, you, yes and no, it all depends. There are some people, yeah. Yeah, that is exactly how it is. Uh, there are some people from the puppy community that I don't, interact with outside of moshes or events but um when i'm there and when i'm a puppy like uh or when i'm not a puppy we talk when we're on the mats uh we play and then i don't see them for a month and that's that's okay sometimes that's just as far as a a friendship or relationship uh can or needs to go <laughs> and um, that is absolutely fine by no means is that not okay <laughs> and what you said earlier about dominance and submission I think comes into play here too right because for some people if they have a dominance and submission relationship it's only when they're in that the, the puppy space and for some people it's only when they're not in that space right so it can kind of be either or or both yeah some some people um uh, only like to be submissive when they're a puppy, but when they're not, uh, they're dominant. It's kind of, it uh, lets them be vulnerable just so that they can keep centered, um, so that they can recenter themselves for when they go back to uh, what they normally do outside of pup play. <clears throat> there are definitely some people who do that. So now one thing that Metric and I talk about a lot on the show that I think probably is different in the pup community just based on the norms, and you kind of addressed this earlier, 
is, you know, in, in the furry community, we've been talking a lot about this idea of affirmative positive consent before like touching or hugging somebody. And I feel like just based on my own personal perceptions and what I've experienced so far of the pup community, there's a lot more assumed familiarity and assumed consent in terms of physical touch and contact and kind of like, I guess, you know, more animalistic take on those things because obviously you're playing this role. But can you talk a little bit about that? Like in terms of what, what, how far assumed consent goes within the pup community and like what's, what's a good touch and what's a bad touch when you're at a pup event? Because I think that's something that a lot of people aren't really comfortable with necessarily. Well, I mean, you just got to look at a real dog, right? I mean, if a dog doesn't want you to touch him or her, like, they're going to let you know. <laughs> and same with human puppies. Um, because there's not a lot of talking involved, or if there is, it's very minimal, usually. Right. Um, it's all kind of uh, sound cues or uh, motion cues, right? There's... Not a lot of uh, speech cues. So they still give and do not give consent. It's just in a different way than most people are used to. And basically, you just got to read for it. <clears throat> so I think based on that, I would, as a personal kind of editor's note, I think just kind of be aware of what you're getting yourself into when you're going to a pup event, right? Like if you're really sensitive to getting touched or if that's something that's going to bother you, you do have to be aware of the environment you're putting yourself into and what the expectations and the norms of behavior are, right? So if you're really averse to being touched, maybe that's something to keep in mind or think about before you put yourself into an environment where you're surrounded by a bunch of rambunctious pups, right? Mm -hmm. Mind you, they're not all rambunctious. There is cuddle <laughs> spaces also for big cuddle puddles, which I enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no absolutely like know what you're getting into if you don't like being touched excessively you need to let people know whether beforehand before you go into headspace with your with your speech or during with a growl or backing away or what have you <clears throat> now i know like within like certain king communities, you have like the dungeon master, the session master. I would assume maybe the handlers take on a similar role at Mosh's, making sure that if, you know, somebody is clearly saying, no, do not want, do not want, do not want, and somebody is kind of not, I would say, understanding perhaps. Maybe there's a miscommunication. Maybe they're just not seeing it. You know, I, I would assume just in my understanding that there's, you know, somebody that would kind of step in and kind of separate the pops, you know. Well, um, most moshes, the groups that run them have designated representatives for that. Uh, a lot like dungeon masters, but not so sinister. <laughs> um, for Vanpaw, anyway, uh, the president and the board members kind of watch over the proceedings and make sure nobody's going too far or getting too rough and actually hurting someone unless it's by accident because accidents happen <clears throat> but um no ha handlers from what i've seen at least handlers who aren't involved in the group running the thing more just play with the puppies and aren't so um watchful of others 
So I guess that's like something good for people to know that like if you go to a mosh, uh, generally speaking, there will be people outside of your handler that will be looking out for you. So they'll be a little bit more objective and, you know, it's, it's good to kind of understand and, you know, for, for your first event, just in general, are these people identified? Do they wear like a t-shirt or is it just the fact that they're not in gear that kind of sets them aside? Usually they will make an announcement pointing themselves out so that you then know who they are, who to look for. Okay, that's good. So, you know, it's good to kind of, you know, talk about, because when we talk about like other kinks, we try to highlight, you know, the, the fact that there are safety measures in place just so people, because let's be honest. I mean, even though pop play is cute and cuddly, and, you know, from from the outside, you know, when it comes to moshes or, or really anything where there's some kind of like a loss of, you know, some sensory deprival in this case, you're not really able to speak that well or you're encouraged not to speak, especially if you have like a tennis ball on your moz. Um, you know, it's good for people to know that there are safety measures in play. That way they can be a little bit less inhibited and get into that headspace a little bit more, you know, securely and a little bit faster with that knowledge. So it's good to know that, you know, pause, do you have that? And again, I guess it comes from being a derivative of, you know, leather culture and, you know, of fabulous kink communities. But kind of speaking of that, with, with pop play being a derivative of the kink community, I think a lot of people make the assumption that it is universally like a sexual thing, that like they're doing it for sexual reasons. And I don't really think it's the case that that's, it's that way for everybody, right? Like, for a lot of people, it's sexual, but it's not always sexual, right? Um, I'm going to... I'm glad you touched on that, because um, absolutely there's an assumption that's made, just like it's also an assumption that, oh, if you're a puppy, you have to be submissive. Well, that's not true. I know plenty of pups who don't like involving sexual connotations with their puppy whatsoever i do a lot (laughs) i think it makes i think it makes it a lot more fun but that's my opinion um right of course i only do that in private sessions of not at the public mosh at the local gay bar of course so yeah there are definitely uh, this stigma that if you're a human puppy and it was derived from the kink community, that means it has to be sexual. Well, that's not true. It really all depends on how you want your dynamic to be. Now, one thing I think is you know true furry and is probably true of the pup community as well, based on the, what it's based in, the fact that it's based in kind of the gay leather community, it is a predominantly homosexual, like, gay men activity right like for the most part but other people can participate right absolutely it is completely pansexual in that regard i think uh the reason it hasn't been so far how it's been mostly gay dominant is because uh gay people don't really follow these relationship normalities that people that Uh, straight people sometimes believe they have to follow. Um, uh, 
but we're seeing a lot more women coming into the community now and I think that's fantastic like our Northwest handler is a woman and I think that's great she's fantastic <laughs> I mean it could maybe do with the misconception perhaps that for that pup play is innately sexual I mean you know, from an outside, you know, perspective, you see a bunch of guys, you know, in jock straps, perhaps bare asses. Some of them might have tails that are actually plugs. Do you know, for some people, they see that, you know, at least, you know, the, the maybe just partial or full nudity in some cases, mm. because, you know, for, for what, you know, I see on Twitter, for example, when I, you know, follow my, you know, pop friends whenever they post pictures of their moshes. Generally speaking, they are private, not public moshes, so people don't really understand the difference between those. So you see a lot more nudity. It's exclusively male. And generally speaking, they look like the archetypical attractive gay man. They're twinkish. They're athletic. You don't really see, you know, fat people like me and pop play in these pictures. So people have this misconception perhaps that you have to be athletic male and it's innately sexual because it's just, you know, pictures of butts and guys wearing masks. So, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. And, um, you do have a point. There is this stigma and the stereotype there that you have to be gay, male, uh, fit and physical, and uh, proud of your body and none of that is um, none of that's true I think the reason the stigma still exists is because of these advertisements for pup gear you know how when you advertise things for for fetish wear you always have to have that big muscular guy who just looks like he was straight out of a Greek history page. <laughs> that guy does not work 40 hours a week. He just goes to the gym. Like That's yeah. what he does, right? So, exactly. And, you know, there's, that's not true. There's people of all sorts of body types, all sorts of genders, whether that be male, female, trans, um, whatever else the other ones are. I can't remember them offhand at the moment. <clears throat> Um, it's very open and welcoming to anyone. Mind you, there's always going to be like that one guy who's just an ass, but everybody else will shut him down real quick. <clears throat> so, you know, one thing that I think we kind of alluded to, too, that I wanted to touch on, uh, and you kind of talked about it in relation to yourself, you were just going over your own history and, you know, your roles that you play in the pup community and that's obviously relevant to our show because we're about non-traditional relationships and how that plays out. And we often talk about non-monogamous, open, polyamorous relationships. Uh, I know this is true in the furry community. It's also true in the leather community and in other BDSM communities. Would you say that the pop community is also kind of enriched for having open and polyamorous type relationships? Or how do people tend to relate to each other in the community in terms of like partnering up? I... Uh... I don't know so much about the women's side of pup play because, um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of them in Vancouver. Um, but for the gay men, anyway, that uh, is absolutely true. A lot of relationships are 
open or at least are open to being open. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I, I think there, I think, yeah, absolutely. That, uh, that is true. Okay. You know, there, there is also this interesting, I don't want to call it divide, but there's a, an interesting bridge between furry and pop culture because you know we're we're both kind of masquerading as animal people just in different forms of costume different and, and like i was saying the headspace for me is very similar right yeah i mean you know we originate more from like sci-fi culture a lot of leather culture a lot of kink culture whereas you know pop culture is you, you guys are kind of like our our cousins in in a lot of regards um maybe liked a little bit more perhaps <laughs> To bring the Darwinian uh, aspects back in, we can say it's a case of convergent evolution, right? We're like mm-hmm. we're like bats and those winged like squirrels, whatever the hell they're called. So I mean, <laughs> where do you see you know some differences between the two? Because I know that I mean, you mentioned you have your 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 puppy persona, and then also you have a fursona. Whereas some people are exclusively in one camp or the other camp. You know, there's a lot of play where you see pups come to fur conventions. You know, there. You know, what what are the differences between the two that you can identify? Um, well, one big difference: uh, pup play is usually a lot more physical, <laughs> so it'd kind of be hard to mosh around in a full fur suit. That would get rather warm. <laughs> uh, from experience, it does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i mean also i would imagine that if you spent you know a few grand on a fursuit you may not want to be so super physical it up that much yeah that that does get a little gross sometimes if you're not using your febreze you know yeah you might damage Mm -hmm. it as well so i mean but like would you say that a lot of the pups that you know are furries or like what is the overlap in like within the vancouver community I think the overlap is getting larger and larger between the puppy and furry community. It really didn't start out that way, but um, it's growing because there are a lot of similarities. Um, <clears throat> but differences are like the gear's cheaper, it's a lot more physical. Um, I feel with pup play at least, uh, when you're on the mats, and let's say you're cuddling, there's a much deeper emotional connection there. You just kind of feel everything. So I don't know how fursuiting is like because I don't own a fursuit and I've never done that before. Uh, So I don't know how similar it is, but that's how um, being a puppy feels. It's just... You, you're very emotionally connected to people that you wouldn't normally be when you're outside of that zone. <clears throat> Remind me to make you uh, wear Vero sometime, Powder. We'll have to see what you think of being, <laughs> being, being a collie. Let's make sure to use your Febreze. <laughs> I sweat a lot. <laughs> Actually, I have, like, it's it's an odd question. So, like, within the fandom, we, you know, we choose our names based off of any kind of factor. Some people choose them off of, you know, I mean, Vero, you're a virologist, so enter science police. Esperanto so. for man, and it sounds yeah. like a dog's name, so it works out. 
So, I mean, you know, Pop Vero has a good ring to it, by the way, which I've definitely, I did shop that when I was picking my furry and I'm like, would Pop Vero work? Yeah, Pop Vero would totally work. All right, we're good. So, I mean, how, how do you, you choose like your, your pop name or your handler name? Is there, is it given to you? Is it something that you're able to kind of workshop with other people? Um, some people, uh, usually the ones who are, more of that submissive type of puppy. They usually have one given to them. <clears throat> I know that's what I did for my pup. Uh, I picked mine based off of my already generated furry name, Powder. Um, I, I picked that for my puppy name because I love playing in the snow. <laughs> so... I thought, um, what better suited for a puppy name than playing around in some fresh powder? Not to mention some great, uh, some great consonants with the, the pup powder, too. There's some alliteration going on there that works pretty well. I yeah. like that. So some people also do have a little deliberation between their close friends or their pack mates or, or what have you. Um, there's there's lots of ways to get your name. <clears throat> so, I'm going to stop you right there for a second. You just said pack mates. So can you talk about that for a second? Do, do a lot of people like live in packs who are in the pup community? Or like, what is a pack and how does that all work out? Um, I think a puppy pack is fairly um, closely related to what a furry pack would be. Um, mine's a little different because my pack has three alphas and two betas and the betas don't even live anywhere near us so, i have two alphas i have two alphas two betas and two omegas so i can relate it can be complicated so um in a pup pack they don't always have to live with each other i i don't think that's that's a constant in the furry community either, but they don't have to live with each other. They don't have to have like one alpha and the rest of them are betas and omegas. Um, it's basically just a group of people that feel uh, emotionally connected to one another to the point where uh, they feel like having this uh, brotherhood sort of thing with each other, right? <clears throat> I think, you know, to borrow from the polyamory community, which also has a word for this, it's called a polycule or something of that nature, where it's just all the people who you relate to and are perhaps sexually, perhaps emotionally, and perhaps romantically involved, but not necessarily any one of those three or all of them. Mm -hmm. It could be that with some people it's romantic and some people it's not, some people it's sexual, some people it's not, some people it's dominance and submission, some people it's not, and you can have any combination of all of those things all within one very messed up, complicated pack, which is what usually happens <laughs> because they all end up getting a little messy over time. They tend to be built by just adding people over time, right? They, they kind of like, you start with one person or maybe a couple and then somebody comes in and then another, you meet another person. So yeah, the, when you build things that way, they don't always end up being as organized as you intend them to be, right? Yeah, the dynamic changes add more people. <clears throat> Basically, you know, what I'm getting, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the furry community and the pop community. You know, 
in, in terms of like persona or personification, because, you know, a lot of furries, they, they put on a fursuit, they have a fursona, um, because it allows for them to kind of express a side of themselves where, or, or to get away from themselves even because, you know, a, a lot of us, you know, we work extensive jobs. We have a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of just day-to-day stress. And whereas some people will turn to call of duty or league of legends or underwater basket weaving, whatever your vice or venture might be, you know, for, for, you know, the pop community for the furry community, we choose to kind of, you know, relax or find a way to get past the day-to-day stresses um, in the form of maybe being a collie or being a pop, you know, getting into like a separate mindset where you can get away from it all. Um, so I see a lot of similarities between our groups as well, because, you know, we, we, we just have different ways of kind of entertaining and, you know, enjoying our lives in the limited amount that we have for, you know, for pops, it might be moshing and be a little bit more physical in terms of the headspace and for furries, it might just be commissioning porn, but you know, it's fine either way because, you know, we're allowed and able to enjoy it. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what I'm getting from all of this is that as long as you're being kind of a good person, there's really no wrong way to be a pop regardless of, your gender, your race, your body size, you know, there's no wrong way that you can kind of go about it. And that is exactly what I try and teach everybody who asks me. There's no specific set way to be a puppy. That's why I disclosed at the very beginning of this. A lot of this is opinion. None of it's set in stone. You want to be a puppy, you be a puppy however you want to be a puppy. And <clears throat> I'm super... Hallelujah, I'm going to applaud. That was awesome. Lo- great speech. I completely agree with you. I just want to point out, though, because it's a fact and the reason we bring it up is th- because, again, this comes out of the gay leather community. I'm just going to give a little bit of history lesson real quick. The leather community historically is very regimented and has a lot of prescriptivist, you must do it this way type stuff. It kind of comes out of its history as being originally kind of a paramilitary sort of deal, right? It kind of came out of World War II, very militaristic very regimented so because pup play kind of came out of that community some of so some of the old guard people who come out of that leather community still feel very strongly about the fact that pup play is supposed to be a very specific thing with very specific practices that you do this way and you come into it this way and you must have a handler and you must do this and you must own these pieces of gear to do this thing and to call yourself this you must have this chain and they have all these rules there are people out there who, who practice pup play that way but it's not the community as a whole, right? It's the, that's within a certain pack, or within a certain community or a certain sect. It's not going to be the whole community, right? Yes, absolutely. And if the, these old guard leathermen find a pup that wants to follow the old guard ways, all the power to them, like, absolutely. But where my problem comes is when they try to force other people to believe that as well. And if that happens to anybody listening who gets into pup play and run into somebody like that and you're not into that don't mind them just <laughs> brush it off <laughs> as i always say unless it's something that's consensually negotiated if somebody calling themselves a dominant gives you an order and you didn't consent to be ordered around by that person they're not being a dom they're just being an asshole so exactly. just be able to tell the difference between a dom and an asshole and don't listen to the assholes 
Listen to a dom who you choose and who you have a relationship with. Build on mutual trust and respect. Absolutely. <clears throat> so, Powder, where are some places on the internet that, uh, you know, people who want to learn more about you, um, people might be able to interact with you? Are we getting to my plugs? <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, we're getting to your plugs. Gonna, go ahead and plug. Not your tail plugs. Plug, we're going to talk about all the places. Yeah, plug your shit. You. <laughs> yeah. Not all the places I can get plugged. Uh, we can talk about that on <laughs> another show. We're we'll, we'll back for a nap. <laughs> find out about those places too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you want to chat with me, just one on one. My Telegram is at pup powder p u p p o w d e r. I'm not going to spell out all of these. <laughs> Um, and we'll link to these in our show notes, by the way, so you don't have to you don't have to write it down, everyone. Yeah, uh, my Instagram is pup underscore powder. I have two Twitter profiles: one for my puppy, which is at pup underscore powder, and for my VR porn profile, which is at Drake Shadows eighty five. My fet life is at pup dash powder. Recon is pup powder. My Tumblr is called the Furry Bin. Dashes between all the words there. Uh, you can ask me anonymous questions there. Uh, if you want to ask me a question via email, uh, by all means, do that at anthony.shoppy at hotmail.com. That's a n t h o n y dot s c h o e p p e at hotmail. And I'd also like to take a moment, if you'll allow me to discuss uh, another great uh, set of events coming up called Rub Out, which includes this very amazing, something we call the Puppy Bowl. <clears throat> and uh, Sounds like fun. <laughs> it is incredibly fun and uh, very wel welcoming to newcomers. It's very friendly, very fun, very high energy, just very exciting. Um, if you're looking for, if you want to look for a list of events for that, and maybe want to purchase tickets to the other events as well over the weekend, uh, you can go to www.rubout.com. That's spelled R-U-B-B-O-U-T. That's all I've got. <laughs> Seriously, though, thank you for coming on. It's you know, we we've, we've been definitely looking forward to having this show um this topic for a long time and it's great to have you here to have your expertise and your insight because again this is a community that is tangential to to our furry community but at the same time it's entirely separate and unique so it's good to have yeah so so far i've only been pup community adjacent i'm looking to get more into it so we're very fortunate to have uh, crossed paths at vancouver so by the way guys networking at furry cons is totally a thing here's some evidence <laughs> I think you and I have a different definition of networking, Vero. Maybe, but you know, it's fine. It doesn't matter how you meet the people. Oh, it's, it's fine. Vero <laughs> definitely has a very different definition of networking. I was using air quotations for those of you who aren't watching. <laughs> for the viewers that would at be home, yeah. everybody that's not everyone, us. everyone who's not. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So hopefully uh, we're going to have Powder stick around now to handle our feedback and questions segment. So we'll see if he has any uh, light to shed on that. Uh, so do you want to lead off with the feedback, Metrico? Yeah. So we did get some feedback um, from Alpine Shep, um, 
who wanted to uh, let us know a few things. Um, hey guys, this is Alpine Shep. I want to say that you guys have a really great show and I love listening to it on my commute to work or when I travel. I wanted to make an observation. Uh, I've noticed that as the show has progressed, the show, the show format has become a little bit more one-sided. What I mean by that is that Metrico, hi, gets a lot more airtime than Vero does, and so it does seem kind of like a one-man show. I want to be clear that the quality of the content has not diminished, the points are still excellent, however, it's less easy to listen to when there's one person talking. I'm not a professional podcaster, and I don't know much about showbiz, but I have noticed the podcasts that I enjoy most have a good back and forth between the hosts. Sort of like an argument, and then a counter-argument, followed by discussion, or perhaps agreement, and then moving on. It doesn't have to be strictly that, but just an example. Uh, just an idea, feel free to incorporate, or simply ignore me. I'll probably still listen to your show. Keep up the great work, guys. Well, Thanks. we appreciate the fact that you, uh, you know... We're rolling in with this, and I, so I'm just going to talk about this a little bit first because it sounds like you're trying to defend me or come to my rescue, and I very much appreciate the thought, but I am not a damsel in distress, fortunately. And Metrico has not... There are no dragons that need to be slayed. Metrico is no dragon. He is but a red panda, and I, right. I like him a lot. And I like letting him talk because he says cool things and important things. And it turns out, actually, that the last few episodes, that was somewhat intentional. And the reason for that is that the topics we were covering were partially review, and they were topics that I'd covered very in-depth in my own voice on the podcast previously, things like nonviolent communication and empathy and things that are kind of my wheelhouse in terms of what I like to talk about and that I really get passionate about. And so with the last couple of shows, we wanted to kind of showcase Metrico's voice on those points and let him talk and bring what he has to bear about nonviolent communication, empathy, conflict resolution. And he, he wanted to kind of talk about his perspective on those things. So it was kind of an intentional move. Uh, but however, I will say what, what you had to say about hearing only one voice for long periods of time being tiring, that's totally legitimate. We cop to that. We realize that's a bit of an issue when we kind of let Metrico monologue too long, even though he, his soapbox is so pretty and we like let him climb up there. It's so cute to watch him scamper. But sometimes that soapbox needs to be ripped out from underneath the panda and we need to, uh, I'll try to interrupt with my the dulcet tones in my voice a little bit more often. But that's also why we brought somebody like the adorable Pup Powder on this week to bring his dulcet tones to the podcast as well, because we want to interrupt Metrico and not just let the panda yammer forever. So there you go. <laughs> you know, it is, you know, with this being, you know, a show, there will be times where there will be topics that are more geared towards my expertise or more towards Vero's expertise. And it is something that we do try to balance, um, making sure that there is equal input to where you don't have to listen to me for 20 or 30 or even five minutes consecutively without getting a break from my voice. Um, I can completely understand that. And it is something that we do actively work on and try to gauge. And you know, hopefully moving forward, you know, we'll shift back into a format that's a little bit nicer to listen to, a little bit easier to listen to, um, mostly because you won't have to listen to me as much. <laughs> and don't worry, we're not professional podcasters and we don't have a background in show business either. So we're all on the same page there. I mean, speak for yourself. Yeah, like, I have a SAG membership. So <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody gets paid for this. <laughs> well, we, we have a Patreon, but that's just people who think we... we who like us and want us to not starve. So that's, <laughs> but you know, you know, thank you very much Alpine Shepherds. I'm glad that you're enjoying our show and that you stick with us even through our less back and forth episodes and, you know, keep listening. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll be able to make some adjustments um, moving forward and have fewer episodes that are just me screaming into the void. Uh <laughs> we, did not, we did not bring pup powder on just to say, fuck you to, by the way, that that was a complete coincidence that this happened. 
back on an episode where we brought in another voice. That's not us just saying, screw you, Alpine Shep. Here's another person talking. Although it's not intentional. Although I am very good at coming up with creative ways to say fuck you. <laughs> Always important. <laughs> to be fair, I almost did reply to your email, Alpine Shep, was just like, oh, you think that I talk too much, huh? Well, next week. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but no, seriously, thank you for your feedback. It's um, positive, negative feedback. They do help us to improve the show. So awesome. There's, thank you so much. Um, we are going to move on to our question, though. Um, our questioner sent an email. Their subject was, how do I reconcile being polyamorous with being Christian in the fandom? I loved Leo's column this week on how to reconcile being homosexual with being religious, specifically Christian, in the fandom. But I have another related question for you guys. Uh, how do I reconcile being polyamorous with being Christian? I have a master and an alpha who are in a relationship with each other, and I adore both of them and would do anything for them, and I know that they would do the same for me. Nothing about what we do feels wrong or like it is harming anyone, but I can't get over the sense that I'm an adulterer, and it makes me feel guilty whenever I consider my faith. Help. Okay, so this is a great question. I'm not Leo, but I did consult with Leo for this question, for the record. Leo being my boyfriend who wrote the column this week on the topic of... Uh, being homosexual and, and being Christian, which both of which he happens to be. So really uh, kind of cool. I do have a background, though, in Christianity. I was, for the record, I currently identify as being uh, an agnostic spiritual person, but I I do have a background in Christianity. I, I was, I'm a confirmed Catholic, and I studied catechism and scripture all through high school. I went to, to Catholic high school and did pretty well in my scripture classes. So I, I feel like I've got a pretty decent background also, my aunt is a Catholic nun, so catechism from that angle as well, for the record. But uh, so I, ha- I have a pretty decent understanding of of Christian faith and Scripture and all of these things. But I'm not. I don't currently identify as being, you know, 100 with any one denomination at the moment myself. Uh, that being said, I think the teachings of Jesus Christ, the man, and that are, that appear in the Bible are often really awesome, and they t- they tell you a lot of really great things. And I think focusing directly on what Jesus actually talked about is one way that I try to reconcile this idea of maybe being polyamorous, which is really all about sharing love and abundance with people and being Christian, which is all about sharing love. Both of these things are all about sharing love. Jesus said, love your neighbor, you know, turn the other cheek, be forgiving, be compassionate, take care of each other, love each other. And polyamory is really all about the same things. I think where people get tripped up is the fact that polyamory often has a sexual component to it. And, you know, Christianity is not necessarily the most uh, open in terms of sexual behaviors. But, you know, the thing is, once you realize that both things are really all about love and you take the sex out of it, think about the fact that I'm, this, I'm going to make an assumption here, but if you're male, I'm going to assume that you jerk off because every male human in existence does, I'm pretty sure. That's a sin according to Christianity. The thing is, jerking off, wasting your seed through non-procreative sex is essentially the same sin as jerking off. So if you're, if, if your alternative to being polyamorous is going to be jerking off, you're not sinning anymore by being in a loving polyamorous relationship where you're helping a pack full of awesome people. You're just jerking off inside of somebody, according to the, I mean, if you, that's one way of thinking about it, according to the, the way Catholicism views sex, is the idea that you're, you know, jerking off is wasting seed. Anytime you're having sex that's not open to procreation, you are technically sinning. So, I mean, as long as you're willing to confess that you're doing that, you say, you know what? I confess that I'm having sexual pleasure outside of procreation, but I'm also making my pack super happy. I'm making these guys' lives better. I'm making them better people. We're all loving and, and you know, building a life together. And we have a household and we, you know, we're raising these two pups and everything's going great. You know, that's awesome. Like, you guys, 
Go you. I think and to me, that's a good Christian life, but that's a very uh, unique to me interpretation of Christianity based, you know, whatever sect or faith that you're participating in, you're going to have to work that out for yourself. But that's how I reconcile it. I just think about the fact that the message of Jesus Christ is really all about love and sharing love and loving abundantly. And really, that's the message of polyamory as well. So that's kind of how I do it. So we're going to talk about a few things. Hi, Metrico here. I've been excommunicated from the Catholic Church. I was never Catholic. Um, so we're going to <laughs> talk about a different background there. Yeah, we're going to talk about Christianity for a second. So, you know, as a brief overview, we're going to completely ignore anything in the Old Testament because as a Christian, you are a follower of the New Covenant, which is what Jesus said. So, really, nothing in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, nothing really is applicable there. So the new covenant covenant is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, cling not to your own understanding. And really the only unforgivable sin, the only <laughs> sin that Jesus kind of set as being like absolutely just awful is blasphemy. So if we look at the red letters, the words that Jesus actually spoke within the, you know, gospel, the first five books of the new Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anything pre Pentecost, there's really no mention of anything that is, well, this is adultery, this is bad. When it comes to plural marriages, to there's no mention of bigamy, there's no no mention of digamy within the text itself. So there's actually nothing on, interestingly enough, polyamory, monogamy, homosexuality, nothing that Jesus himself said. The only thing that he really said is love your neighbor as yourself. That is the most important credo within Christianity. Christianity being a sect of the Nazarenes, meaning being Christ-like. So we're going to talk about that for a second. Anything that goes beyond that, you have the apostles, you have the disciples who kind of built upon what Jesus said and went off in their own directions most uh, notably being Peter, Luke, and John. So what they had to say was meant specifically to churches. Most of the remainder of the New Testament is their personal correspondence with different churches that they have established throughout the region. We can talk about the translations. Most of these were not written in Aramaic. They were written in Greek. The Greek is itself very problematic when it comes to the translation, even if you look at what was written in Latin, very problematic in translation. The translation that we have, and if you're looking at the New International Version, uh, which is what most modern churches uses, or the King James Version, that is a translation of a translation of a translation that was handwritten and prescribed by monks throughout millennia. Until we had really the movable type printing press, there was no mass distribution of this text, so everything was written by hand. There's no way for us to confirm that what book you have is fundamentally the same as the first book that was. You also have the idea that there are certain texts, there are certain portions that were cast out by lot when they were deciding what was actually scripture. So the Bible itself is fundamentally flawed as we have it today. That's what we just want to kind of say first off. Christianity as a whole has a great moral standpoint for you if you want to relate to others within the world. When it comes to you and your personal relationships, there's really nothing that Jesus says. All he says is do not really commit adultery. Adultery is bad. Don't, don't fucking do it. Adultery is cheating on your spouse or spouses. So... See, and that's a key point. I was going to interrupt you there for a second, Metrico, because that's mm -hmm. the point, next point that I was going to make, is drawing a connection back to Leo's 
column from last week, and that's or from this Monday rather. And that's he made the point that there's really no great word in the Bible. The word that the Bible uses to even condemn homosexuality is the word that is more directly applicable to someone who is a pedophile than it is to someone who is having consensual sex with other adult males, right? So when the Bible's condemning homosexuality, the thing that it's really coming down strongly against is pedophilic homosexuality or relationships between men and boys. That's what they relate, the Bible's not a fan of, even in the Old Testament, really. They didn't really have a great word for consensual gay sex between adult men. It wasn't something that was really relevant to bring up a lot. So that, that, that just didn't really happen. Similarly, the, the authors of the Bible didn't really have great language or words for things like polyamory, open relationships, ethical non-monogamy. These are not concepts and words that we had in, you know, there's no word for polyamory. Obviously, we had to make one up in English even, using Latin and Greek to, ma to make up a word for this, right? So there wasn't really a great way of describing or going into these things back then. And a whole, there wasn't really a lot of understanding or conception of, of how this could be an ethical relationship where everyone is consenting and everyone's okay with this. It just... When you don't have the words to express a thought, it's very hard to put it down. And so that, that the Bible is hobbled in that way as well, based on the fact that the language wasn't really available to describe these things. Right, Metrico? Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of words that were that we just don't have a good translation for, and we have to put them into context. And so the issue is, is that the context that we have when they were translated from the original text is completely different from what we have now. And that's even true of... The religion as a whole. You have different, you have a completely different culture. You have Judaic culture in, you know, AD 45, which is completely separate from the culture that we have nowadays, even Judaic culture AD 2017. So what we're ending up having to deal with is the fact that nothing really, I hate to say, applies there's really no kind of application that we're able to put when it comes to later texts. Now, just for everybody's kind of understanding, in the New Testament, there's really not much mention of polyamory or really in polygamy. It's We know that around the time of Jesus, that in Roman culture, polyamory wasn't super duper practiced in either Greek or Roman cultures. While there were people that were, we'll say, you know, polyamorous, there wasn't really a mass kind of practice of this. Even within Judaic culture, there were several sects um, among the Jews with around the time of 80, um, I think, for the Hillel uh, prestigious school kind of said, no, you have the Dead Sea sect or the Qumran that said, absolutely not. The rabbis kind of cracked down on it. Here's what we're going to talk about for a second. We're actually going to drill a little bit deeper. When we talk about Jesus and adultery, he's actually talking about divorce. He's talking about Judaic law. What he says is, when Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, that was okay. But I'm telling you now, the only way that you can properly divorce somebody is if your wife cheats on you. If you divorce her for any other reason and then you remarry, you are an adulterer. That is what he said. And if you're interested in that, that's uh, Matthew 19.9. Um, there's also a section in Mark 10 verses one through 12. If you go further, Paul in Romans seven, he talks a little bit more about if you remarry another man while your husband is still alive, the wife is an adulterer. If your husband dies, she is released from this. Again, this is all Judaic law. This is Judaic culture. A lot of this is applicable because 
you know, it's it's they were ministering to Jews. They were using the pre-established rules that they were familiar with in order to build upon it. Christianity is just a massive Jewish cult that became a religion. That's how all religions start. So it's important to understand that a lot of the rules, a lot of the policies, a lot of these things don't necessarily apply. Now, you might say, well, the Bible applies to everybody as a Christian. Everything is applicable. It doesn't matter if I'm a Jew. I'm part of the New Covenant. You know, thanks to Pentecost, all, you know, the fucking vision that they had of the blanket opening and it being a massive spread of all different food and it's all acceptable and everything is kosher is non-kosher and it's all acceptable at the end of the day what's important to note is that there is really nothing that is anti-polyamorous you know there are some leaders within the church that were not we can talk about justin martyr we can talk about Iranius. we can talk about tertullian these are again bc 160 180 207 we can go as far forward as 315 circa to talk about polyamory. The thing is, is that these are all not Jesus. <laughs> As a Christian, you are to be Christ-like. Now, you can follow the rules of a fundamental organization. You can be part of organized religion, and that is completely fine. But having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is completely different from being a member of a church. So it is entirely easy to reconcile being gay, being poly, being whatever you want to be, and being Christian, as long as you are not being blasphemous. At the end of the day, your personal relationship with your religious head, with your religious figurehead, and for the record, you know, within Christianity, you have the Trinity, which is kind of a polyamorous sort of thing going on. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all one and the same, and you got to love them all at the same time. It is, kind of it is kind of an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? Yeah, that's very true. It is kind of poly in a way. So, I mean, there is really no kind of like poly, you know, polygamion. There's no kind of issue, you know. Adultery is mentioned as something entirely different by Jesus. And again, that's following Judaic law. So, there's really no guilt or shame that you need to feel. And there's really no kind of apologetics that you have to do, no gymnastics or any kind of mental trickery that you have to undergo to be a gay polyamorous within Christianity. So I wouldn't stress it out too much. I would just say have a personal relationship with Jesus or whoever your religious head might be, whether you're Buddhist or Hindu, whatever it might be. Having that personal relationship, that personal spirituality is going to do wonders for you, and it's going to allow for you to develop as a person and move beyond the guilt and shame that organized religion instills within each and every single one of us. That's my point on this. Uh, anything else to add, Powder, Vero, anybody? I think that pretty much wraps it up. I, th I really was focusing on the idea that adultery and cheating, for me, is really where it comes down. And I think as long as you interpret cheating to be doing something your partners haven't agreed to rather than, you know, the idea that cheating is you're just having sex with someone who's not your spouse. It really comes down to definitions, right? And I think we just don't have the right definitions in mind when we think about applying modern understandings of things like adultery to a text that was written, in, you know, close to 2000 years ago. Right. So, you know, we, we really can't, you know, we have issues in America about reconciling how we are now as a country based off of a text that was written 200 years ago. 
And we're, you know, Christians are expected to follow a text that was written nearly 2000 years ago. I don't really see how that's feasible. So just going to kind of leave it at that. We're going to go ahead and close out this week's show, actually. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about shame. We're going to talk about, you know, how we as individuals tend to internalize shame, tend to internalize these negative you know, experiences that we undergo as children, as adults, and we allow for the shame to interplay within our life and to express itself in different ways that can be undermining and ultimately damage our relationships with ourselves and with other people. It's going to be a wonderful episode. It's something that I struggled with, and it's kind of a personal episode for myself and Vero talking about the yeah, shame. Definitely an episode. Shame it comes up in so many different contexts, and it can really befuddles your interpersonal relationships if you let it. So we're going to talk about that and give it its, its full shrift next week. Yep. If you want to contact us here at Feral Attraction, we have a contact page at feralattraction.com slash contact. Get into touch with us. Feedback form is right there. You can submit anonymously. You can call us on our telephone. So many ways to get into touch with us. That's the best way to ask us questions that we will answer in the advice column or on this show. We also have a Patreon if you're interested in contributing in a financial sense. Uh, We have different tiers for our patrons, one of which allows for us to give a shout out on the show. Snares is one of our patrons, uh, patreon.com slash snares for Meteor Showers, which is a crowdfunded webcomic. If you're interested in getting a commission by Snares, visit furaffinity.net and look for his user account, which is furious like the emotion. Zarpolis is an author if you're interested in something that's written in a little bit furry. It's a if you're a fan of high-tech sci-fi stories, you would probably be interested in the Para Imperium universe by Zarpolis. Uh, he actually recently published a short novel with Thurston Howell Press titled The Pride of Parahumans. You can go check it out on Amazon if you're interested. And if you are interested in maybe tossing him a few, you know, bucks, some twos and some fews, go to his Patreon at patreon.com slash Or if you're looking for a new friend on Twitter, consider Myron the Fluffy. Their Twitter handle is at MyronTheFluffy. Follow them for pictures and daily red panda dog ramblings. It also helps us if you leave a rating and a review on our iTunes or our Google Play Music Store. That helps our visibility and helps other people find our content. So, you know, plenty of ways to get into touch with us and help support our show. Again, I want to thank you, Powder, for joining us on this week. Your expertise really was instrumental in helping us come to understand the pup community a little bit better. So thank you very much. I have to thank you guys for sure. I love uh, getting the opportunity to get on and uh, maybe uh, teach some people a lot of things that they didn't know. Um, I always love getting the chance to do that. Can we get one more plug for the upcoming event that you're uh, helping to organize there? Uh, that event is called Rubout. It's the longest running rubber and gear general fetish weekend in North America. We're going on our 26th year. And so you can find full schedule and ticket prices at www.rubout.com. That's www.rubb. O-U-T.com. <clears throat> and as always, links to everything that we spoke about on the show, links to all of Powder's social medias, and links to Rubout will be on our show notes page on our website. You can also access it 
within the iTunes app by clicking or mashing your finger, I suppose, on the show notes <laughs> hyperlink. So thank you, everybody, for joining us on this week. Next week, again, we're going to be talking about shame. Until then, I'm Metrico. I'm Vera the Science Collie, and with us has been special guest, Pup Powder. Oh! Be well.